are listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. All right, if you'll stand, we're going to read scripture together. Uh, We're in Acts chapter 1. I'm going to read the portion from the little uh, journal that we have here. So it's on page 8, where we'll start. Acts 1, verses 12 through 26, I think. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his boughs gushed out. And it became known to the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Alkadama, that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles." This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Well, we're getting ourselves situated, and you all are turning to Acts chapter 1, which, as Terry said, is on page 8 of the Scripture Journal. If you've gotten one of these down at the Welcome Center or the Info Center, and it's on page I forgot to look it up in the Black Bible underneath the seat in front of you. So you can check the uh, table of contents there and find your way to Acts 
chapter 1. Before we jump into that, or into today's teaching while y'all are getting settled, I want to give us a brief recap and a reminder of where we are in this whole big story. I know this is going to be a long study of Acts, so we're going to try to recap where we are regularly, and I know this is only week three, but still, we've covered it a lot, so we'll recap a little bit. We started this journey a couple weeks ago by looking at what the book of Acts actually is a theological history that Luke's writing of everything that Jesus is, well, not everything, it's a selective theological history of what Jesus is continuing to do and teach in the church through the Spirit about the kingdom of God. And then last week, Pastor Jeff led us through the passage that includes the big sort of theme statement or thesis statement of the whole book that the disciples are like, okay, Jesus, we're ready to watch you do this kingdom thing. And he says, okay, well, hold on. I'm not going to tell you the whole itinerary, but the next step is go back to Jerusalem, wait for me there, you'll receive power from the Spirit, and then you will be, it's a promise and a prediction, uh, you will be my witnesses. You're going to take this kingdom of God thing. You're not just going to, you know, watch it happen. You're going to participate in taking this kingdom of God thing from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So that's where we are when we find today's story. We're here where the disciples are like, okay, Jesus said, next thing to do, go back to Jerusalem, wait. And so the passage that we're looking at today starts with, then they return to Jerusalem. Now, you may have been listening to the scripture reading and wondering to yourself, A, how long do I have to stand here? And B, why is this story in our Bibles? I mean, aside from the gruesome details about Judas's death, which I promise is not the reason why we kept the kids in here for scripture reading, as like you could, you know, nudge them a little bit, like, see what happened to Judas? No, that's not the reason. It's the whole thing about, you know, public reading of scripture and how we're supposed to do that and all that. Anyway, uh, why is the story in here other than those details? And we may read it and go, okay, why does Luke include a story about two new characters Matthias and, and Joseph Barsabbas, also called Justice, he introduces two new characters that then he never mentions again. This is like bad plotting and bad storytelling, right? Unless, of course, he's got a reason for including this story, a reason that maybe is a little opaque to us uh, at initial read. I think, and this is the reason why I'm irrationally excited to teach this passage, I think there's a lot in here that is instructive for us, for Faith Church in the 21st century. You remember we're doing this whole study of the book of Acts because we're trying to get our minds around the origin story of the church. The church with a capital C, but also this church, you know, with a lowercase c, unless it's Faith Church and then the style guide says capital C. So the church, this church, where did we come from? If we understand where we came from, then we have a pretty good idea about where we're going and what we're trying to do. So this passage has a, a lot for us, but it's gonna take some digging. There's a lot that's sort of culturally assumed or, or things that we don't get because we're not first century uh, Jews, we're 21st century whatever we are. So we're going to spend some time going through some of these details before wrapping it all back up with this one kind of big key idea uh, that Luke is trying to get across to us, which I think is this. Now, I'm going to put it in terms of us. I think this passage is showing us that Luke is telling us that faith church now in the 21st century and any other church that may be meeting this morning, but faith church now is part of 
this movement that is the whole big story of what God is doing in the world. The church now is part of the whole big story of what God is doing in the world. Now, let's jump in and I'll show you how I get that out of this. And to figure that out, we're going to have to dial in on one key phrase and wrap our minds around what Luke means when he just uses this phrase without telling us what it means. In my scripture journal, in verse 25, yeah, 25, 24 and 25, I've drawn a big box around four words, this ministry and apostleship. Verse 25. Verse 25, the key to understanding this whole story comes in those four words, this ministry and apostleship. So if you're taking notes or if you've got one of the church Bibles and you want to leave an Easter egg for somebody like 20 years from now to discover and wonder why there's a box around that. Put a box around it, circle it, star it, draw a key next to it, something, because this is the main point that we're going to come back to. But to understand this phrase, we got to get a running start at it and read the whole story in context. So back to the beginning of what was read this morning, verse 12, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem. It's a Sabbath day's journey away. That's like three-quarters of a mile, two-thirds to three-quarters of a mile. Now, that's not exactly the whole point here, except Luke is giving us kind of the historical construction of like, hey, this is where they were, this is what happened, where they were going, and all of that. And these first couple verses, the first paragraph, basically they just recount for us the, the group of people who are still following Jesus after his ascension, after, before, let's see, yeah, after his ascension, after those 40 days that he's been teaching about what the kingdom of God is, who is this group? And Luke is sure to tell us it's the 11. I mean, it used to be 12, but you remember what happened to one of the guys. Uh, so it's the 11 remaining disciples or apostles. And then there's also a group of women with them, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Jesus' own brothers, and Luke tells us later, about 120 in all, men and women and these apostles that are all uh, together, waiting together for this promise that Jesus said was coming, the Holy Spirit. Now, while they're waiting, we'll find out this is like a 10-day period or so, while they're waiting, Peter recognizes that there's a problem, and he summarizes the problem in verse 17. Now, verse 17, this is in Peter's speech. He's saying to everyone there, hey, this, the scriptures had to be fulfilled uh, about Judas. He was, this is verse 17, because he, Judas, was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. You see the contrast between what he just said in verse 16 and what he's talking about in verse 17. Judas was this guy who was one of the 12 with a capital T. He was allotted among us, counted among us, and he had a share in the ministry. He had a role, something he was supposed to do, and yet he turned from that, became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. And then Luke throws in a little parenthetical couple of verses about what happened to that guy. Um, and it's not good. I don't need to go into the details. Uh, the basic point of it here is Luke is saying, you see what happened to Judas after he betrayed Jesus? Kind of looks like he's being judged for something. You tell me what. Right? Luke is, is coming at it. He said, let's keep, get you up to speed on what's happened with Judas. Actually, if we were only reading Luke's writings, so the Gospel of Luke and Acts, we wouldn't know anything more about Judas because the last time Luke talked about him was when Judas shows up, he kisses Jesus. Jesus says, you're going to betray me with a kiss. And then, end scene, Jesus is arrested. They move on, and Judas is never mentioned again. 
Until here, when Luke throws in kind of parenthetically, oh, by the way, that guy, not good. Now, what they're doing in these 10 days, waiting between when Jesus ascended into heaven and when, you know, they don't know when the Spirit is coming, but they're waiting for it, is these, this group of 120 is gathered together. They're doing what kind of the early church would do, which is be together, be united in prayer, waiting for God to send them on mission. But there, uh, Luke tells us very specifically, they devoted themselves to prayer together. They devoted themselves to prayer in verse 14. They're spending this time together in worship. And part of the Jewish habit of worship, besides praying things like the Shema, which all of our kids learned at kids' camp last week, besides things like praying the Shema, is also praying the Psalms, singing and praying through all of the Psalms on a regular basis. Usually within even a week, you could get through all 150 of the Psalms. And as they're doing this, as they're praying the Psalms together, Peter is connecting dots because some of the psalms they're praying are psalms like Psalm 69, Psalm 109. These are psalms about how God's righteous servant is attempting to follow him and yet is being persecuted uh, or being killed. It contains lines, these psalms contain lines that you're familiar with, right? Like, um, they, gave me, uh, they gave me no food and, and sour wine to drink. These are psalms that the early church started reading and thinking, you know, that sounds a lot like Jesus. That sounds a lot like the Messiah and what he experienced. Peter's the first one to start connecting these dots. And what's significant about these psalms, Psalm 69, Psalm 109, and of course others, but these two in particular, is that there's this part about, okay, here's what the righteous servant is going through, and then the psalm will pivot to these words of, I guess, curse or condemnation is really the best word for it of what should happen to those who are persecuting or oppressing or whatever the righteous servant. That's where lines like, let their camp become desolate with no one to live in it, comes from. Uh, Let others take their office, take their role, take their reward, depending on the translation. That's where these lines come from. And, And Peter is praying these psalms and putting the dots, connecting the dots, putting things together and realizing this sounds a lot like what we experienced with Judas betraying Jesus. It starts drawing parallels. Judas had a role, an office, just like the other 11 disciples or apostles did. Judas betrayed Jesus like the people in the Psalms betray God's servant, Judas died in such a way that no one wants to live on his property. The property value of the field called field of blood is very low. No one wants to live there. So his camp is desolate with no one to live in it. And and if Judas had a role that's now empty, then we need to find someone to fill that role. Let someone else take his office. Let someone else take his role. And this is how Peter's putting these dots together and suddenly realizing there's only 11 of us left and we need 12. Now, why, I'll get to in a moment. But before we get to why we needed 12, let's talk about their qualifications. Peter says it can't be just anyone. And he gives us two qualifications for the, you know, the successful applicant will. And he gives us two things in verses 21 and 22. 
Verses 21 and 22, he says, so one of the men, that's the first uh, qualification, has to be a man. I'll explain why in a couple of minutes. But he says, one of the men who, second qualification, who has accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. That's just a way of saying like the whole time that we were with him. But then he gets, he puts time, you know, coordinates on both ends of it. He said, beginning from the baptism of John. So it's very beginning, Luke chapter 3, when John baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River, beginning all the way back there at the beginning, all the way through until the day when he was taken up from us. He's saying like literally three days ago. Someone who's been there since the, from the very beginning until like right now, this is what it takes to be qualified because one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection a witness to his resurrection. And that's a really specific term, meaning this is someone who is gonna, has to be able to say, I saw Jesus. I saw him before he was crucified. I saw him after he was crucified. I saw him when he rose again. I saw him when he ascended into heaven. This person has to be able to say, not just I heard about it from other people, but I'm an eyewitness. I saw Jesus before and after. And there's only two men that qualify. Now, I know normally when we're reading the Gospels we, or seeing images of it or whatever, we tend to think of, it's like Jesus and his 12 guys, and basically that's it. Uh, but most of the time, Jesus had a much larger group of people following him. They were more broadly referred to as the disciples. When we say, like, the disciples, we usually mean the 12 and then just disciples in general is some bigger group. But it's this bigger group of the 120, Luke says, that they look around and are like, there's only two guys that fill this role. There's only two guys that were there from the very beginning at the baptism all the way through now to his ascension. And somewhat ironically, Jesus' own brothers don't qualify. They weren't around at the beginning. They didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. They, they didn't follow him. It wasn't until after he was resurrected that Jesus' brothers looked at their older brother and like, you really are the Son of God. My brothers haven't gotten there yet either, so I understand <laughs> that it's going to take a death and a resurrection to prove it, and I don't want to go through that. So uh, I don't think it's going to happen for me. Anyway, uh, Jesus' brothers, it's not a family thing. It's a who's been part of this from the very beginning thing. And so these two guys qualify, right? We're given their names. Joseph, called Barsabbas, which means son of the Sabbath. So maybe he was born on the Sabbath day. Um, or Sabbas could also mean old man. So either maybe his dad was really old when he was born. We don't really know. And he also has a Roman name, Justice. And then the second guy, Matthias. So Joseph and Matthias. And the group is together praying, and this is what brings us up to verses 24 and 25, where our key phrase is, they're essentially praying, okay, Jesus, Lord, you appointed 12 of us. One of us went off to his own place. We need you to appoint another one to take his place. There's two guys who could qualify. Who are you going to choose? And then they leave it up to Jesus. Now, right in the middle of that prayer is this key phrase that we have to dig into for a little bit here. It's that, those four words, this ministry and apostleship. Now, 
we translate it here in the ESV as two words because that's exactly how it shows up in the Greek, ministry and apostleship. But they're not praying about two separate things or two separate roles as if we need a guy to sometimes minister and a sometimes to apostler or whatever. Um, this is one of those fun grammar things that like word nerds write their graduate theses about. Two words together with an and in the middle uh, really just means one thing, um, like good and tired, or um, what else did I write down? I was sick and tired, nice and warm, good and ready. All the ones I, could think, I was thinking of were not appropriate to share. That one will hit you on the way out. So in here, these two words together with the and in the middle, this ministry and apostleship is talking about one thing, apostolic ministry, or ministry of apostleship. Something along those lines. Apostolic ministry is probably the best translation for it. Because this is a specific role that Jesus created for 12 guys during his ministry. Now, this word apostle, we're familiar with the word because if you grew up in church or in sort of a Christian context, you're used to the word apostle being used as like someone with some sort of authority. And it generally means that, sort of someone with some sort of authority, but the way Jesus uses the word and Luke uses the word, it has to do with someone who has authority to communicate a message because they're getting authority from someone else or somewhere else. Now, apostle, at its root, the word means to be sent. So an apostle is someone or something that has been sent from someone to someone else or to something else. Sometimes the word is used like a colony of a bigger city could be called an apostle because it was sent out from the bigger city or a naval expedition uh, or a shipping manifest uh, or a, a letter of authorization to sell the things that you, 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 know, you could pull up into port with a ship full of cargo and they'd ask, all right, where's your apostle? And you're like, well, here's the list you know, of everything that was sent in front of me telling you what this is, right? Well, but when Jesus uses the word, he uses the word to speak of being sent with a message. In Luke 4, this is how Jesus uses the word. He says he's literally, he's been apostled from God, apostled from God, sent from God to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. He says, I was apostled for this purpose. I was sent for this purpose. And then he turns around and he apostles some of his followers and says, I'm sending you, I'm apostling you to preach, to proclaim the kingdom of God. But where these 12 guys got the title, like capital A, apostle, is in Luke chapter six. Jesus calls the whole big group of disciples together and out of the big group, he selects 12 and says, I'm making you apostles. You 12 are the ones who authoritatively represent me. And throughout the rest of Luke's gospel and into Acts, that's generally what the word, or almost specifically what the word apostle means. These like 12 guys who've been selected by Jesus to authoritatively represent him with the message of the kingdom of God, to proclaim the kingdom of God. So throughout Luke's gospel, he refers to these guys as the 12 or the apostles, and it all kind of comes to a head in Luke 22 during the Last Supper. The 12 guys are arguing amongst themselves, like Jesus is seated right there, and they're, they're arguing which one of them is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus interrupts them, and he's like, guys, look, I know. If you're at the table, you're greater than if you're serving at the table. 
but I came to serve, so you all maybe reorder your priorities a little bit. But then he shifts into this really fascinating couple of sentences where he looks at them, and after just telling them, I'm here to serve, he says, but you guys are the ones who have stuck through me, stuck with me through all of these trials. This is Luke 22, like verses 28, 29, 30, something like that. You guys are the ones who have stuck with me through all of these trials, and just as the Father gave me a kingdom, I'm giving you a kingdom. Right, they were just arguing about who's gonna be greatest in the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. And he's saying, yes, I'm coming with a kingdom. Actually, I'm also giving you a kingdom. And you're gonna eat and drink. You're gonna sit at the table with me. But you're also going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, before we take that sentence and try to make sense of it by immediately just sort of pushing it off into the future and saying, well, I don't know what that is. It's metaphorical. I'm, I'm sure it's gonna happen someday. Let's remember what the word judging means or how it would come across to a first century Jewish guy really steeped in the story of Israel. When we hear judge or throne, we tend to think of something judicial, right? Sitting up on a chair, people coming in front of us, telling us their stories, and then we say, you're wrong, or good job, or sinner be gone, or whatever it is that, that judges say. But for a first century Jew hearing these words, that's part of it for sure, but it's not the whole scope of the idea of judging. The idea of judging is much broader all the way back through and resonating all the way back through their history to the period of the judges, right? Before there's a king. Before there was a king, every time that Israel got itself into a bind through its own rebellion or sin, or walking away from God, God sent a judge. Actually, some new translations will just translate it, sent an official, because it's like, it's more than judging. And that's right, it is more than just judging. These are are men and women who are called by God to exercise redemptive leadership. That's the key term. They were called by God to exercise leadership, to call Israel back to God. Judges are people who are called by God to call Israel back to God. And in Luke 22, Jesus says, hey, you 12 that I've called, I'm also calling you to be judges. I'm calling you to help me call Israel back to God. This is what it means to sit on 12 thrones and judge Israel. It's not to pronounce uh, you know, negative judgment on them. It's to actively be part of the ministry of calling Israel back to God, back to the kingdom of God through the Messiah, through Jesus. And it's at this point where we see where the whole idea of the 12 really comes together and, and starts to make sense. These 12 guys represent a reforming of the people of Israel a remaking of the people of Israel with Jesus as their king. You remember the story of how Israel started, 12 brothers, each one becomes kind of the head of a tribe, which together make up the nation of Israel. This is God's chosen people through whom he's going to heal the sin sickness of humanity, and yet the physician has the disease itself and, and can't heal the rest of humanity. But it's these, these 12 guys, which is why we had to have 12 apostles. It's 12 brothers that needed to be 12 men. 
These 12 guys represent, Jesus' 12 represent Israel, reformed around him as their king. This is what Peter has in mind when he suddenly realizes we've only got 11. 11 isn't 12. 11 doesn't fill the whole story of what God is doing through new Israel in Jesus out to the ends of the earth. He's like, panic moment, we need 12. Because this whole story started with 12. What's at stake is the whole promise of God's good rule his rule extending to the whole world through Israel, this is what's at stake unless they find a 12th guy. So who qualifies? Two guys. And they leave the result up to Jesus by casting lots. You're the one who chose us in the first place. You tell us which pebble should shake out of the jar, and that's how we'll know who's number 12. Now, I know the whole idea of casting lots sounds kind of ridiculous to us, because um, we don't tend to do it that way. There's quite a bit of historical precedent for this, as well as an understanding that, hey, you can throw the dice, but God directs the roll. That's a, from Proverbs 16, I think. And basically the way it worked is like, okay, we'll take this dark-colored pebble, and this is, this is Joseph, and we'll take the light-colored one, and this is Matthias, and we'll put them both in a jar, and we'll shake it up, and whichever one comes out first, you know, that's the one. Now, a lot of different authors have kind of looked at this and go, really, like, is that how you're supposed to make decisions? Like, are we supposed to roll the dice to find out what God wants, (laughs) right? Like, okay, God, if it's a two through a six, I'll do what I want. But if it's quadruple snake eyes, I'll do what you want, right? No, interestingly, this is the last time we see any method like this used by the church, Uh, Because right after this, the Spirit enters into everyone, into the church, and empowers them and communicates much more immediately than through rolling dice or casting lots, you know, what God's will is, what the right thing to do is. But here makes perfect and total sense for uh, for their time period, and it's like, well, God's in charge of the role, so they weren't doing anything wrong. Uh, So they shake the jar, the, I don't know, the light-colored pebble comes out, which means Matthias, The lot falls to Matthias, he becomes the 12th apostle, and Luke never mentions him again. Which is great if you're the loser in this one, if you're Joseph, because you're like, well, I mean, if you lose, you never get mentioned again, but hey, if you win, you never get mentioned again either. So I guess it doesn't matter which way it went. But no, Luke is telling us this story and introducing these characters and telling us about the importance of the 12 without really ever explaining or showing the 12 working, you know, working this apostolic ministry. Now, there's lots of church tradition about what happened to these 12 guys, you know, where they went, Syria, Ethiopia, all over the world uh, with the gospel message. But as, in terms of Luke's thin slice, his theological slice of church history, He doesn't need to include what they did specifically because it's not about the individual, Matthias or Joseph, if he'd taken the lot. It's not about the individual. It's about what this group of 12 represent. So what is this story communicating for us today? Is it a lesson for churches on how to make decisions? Do we pass the budget or not? Roll of the dice, right? Is it, uh, is, some people think that actually Luke is critiquing uh, Peter for not waiting until Paul came on the scene. Like, come on, Paul's the 12th apostle. Everyone knows. Well, according to this, Paul's not qualified. He wasn't there at the beginning or the resurrection. 
Now he'll be called an apostle later, but it's like a lowercase a apostle. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, or is, it, is you know, Luke just trying to come up with a reason to tell us what happened to Judas, as some people think? I think there's a whole lot more going on there. Luke is making two, uh, maybe three, hugely important points that we need to understand today. They have direct application for us today. Two, maybe, maybe three. So one, two, and two B, we'll say. First main point that Luke is showing us, first, and this is huge, we can't understand the rest of Acts if we don't get this. The first main point is that Luke is showing us that this whole movement that Jesus started, this kingdom of God movement, it is firmly situated in the whole big story of what God is doing in the world, his creation, redemption, recreation of the world. The church, the book of Acts, is not like some alternate timeline or parallel universe where if a few people had made a different decision over here, it would have gone that way, but instead it went this way. This is how God's whole big story and plan for the world is unfolding itself. Now, you remember the big story, right? God made the world, and he put humans in the world in a garden with the job to do to shepherd that garden and expand the borders of the garden around the world. This was huge because God's presence was in the garden, which was this small little patch of land in the Fertile Crescent. And God said, I need you to take this garden. This is what you get to do with me. Take this garden and expand it until it covers the globe, until God's presence in covers, you know, in in globes, in robes, in covers, whatever. Some word for cover the whole thing. Covers the world, fills the earth. Take the presence of God to the ends of the earth might be the language that Luke would use. That's the beginning. That's the big story. Take this kingdom and build it around the earth. And and the first two were like, I think we'd rather build a little kingdom to ourselves than your big kingdom. And that's when the cancer of sin enters the human race. Humanity as a whole and every human individual is now being eaten up from the inside. And compressing the story, but God chooses Israel and says, I'm going to heal the earth. I'm going to heal humanity through you, except Israel has the disease and can't heal itself, much less everyone else. So God himself, in Jesus, came to earth as a human being and lived as every human being should have lived without sin, as a citizen in God's kingdom, making his glory known. Sometimes we say that Jesus was the ideal human. He represented ideal humanity, but he also represented the ideal Israelite, what it meant to be truly Jewish, And in his living, he kind of, this is the way the story goes, the way it's laid out throughout the New Testament. He wrapped up the whole history of Israel into himself, and then by living rightly in God's kingdom, lived Israel's history, but rightly, healing Israel from the inside so that it could then go everywhere else. And part of reliving the story of, of Israel meant reforming Israel around 12 new guys, 12 new tribe leaders who would act as redemptive leaders, 12 guys called by God to call Israel back to God, which is huge because that's exactly what we see happen in the next chapter. In chapter uh, chapter two, whatever comes after one, chapter two, 
when Jews from all over the world are gathered back to Jerusalem for Pentecost and Peter and the other apostles are all preaching and sharing the message of the Messiah and Jews from the entire world are drawn back together, called back to God by these people who are called by God to call people back to God. That's where this whole story is going. In other words, this whole thing, right? Jesus, I mean, he could have simply led Israel out of captivity uh, in a new exile, taken them out from underneath Roman rule and said, all right, here's us. Like, we're Israel, we're our own nation now with the other nations. But he didn't. Instead, he was crucified. He was killed and rose again, which means the problem is a whole lot bigger than just one nation being subjugated by another nation. The problem required death to overcome. The problem of humanity is sin, and now because Jesus died and rose again, life in the kingdom of God is available to more than just those who can tie their genealogy back to Israel. Life in the kingdom of God is available to everyone who ties their future to eventual death, which is 100% of us. This is who is invited to, to come in because Jesus Right. Israel's Messiah, through Jesus, the blessing of life in the kingdom and the family of God is extended to the whole world. This was the promise from the beginning, that through Abraham, the, you know, the first guy at the very top of Israel, through Abraham, the whole world would be blessed, and Abraham would have a family that extended around the globe. Today, we call that family the church. This is how God's good rule is coming into the world through the church. To be part of a church is to be part of Messiah's family, Abraham's family, the family of God. The family of God, but now reformed around Jesus and reinvigorated to get on with that original creation plan to fill the earth with God's glory, to take the message, the good news of the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. That's been the goal since the very beginning. And the kingdom of God is now extending through the church, which means we, Faith Church in the 21st century, are part of the worldwide creation-encompassing whole big story of how God is making his glory known. That's us. That's our role in this story. And that is the first huge point that Luke is making. And I'm already out of time, so I'm gonna have to go quick through the next two. The second huge point, and again, this is critical, the second huge point is that this movement that Jesus has started is rooted in history, in actual events in space and time. You'll notice when Peter says, hey, we need to find men who are qualified, the qualifications aren't along the lines of, hey, who's had the most like, emotional connection with Jesus? Like, Who's really resonant? Who cries when they talk about what Jesus has done for them? That guy should be in charge. And it's not... Who can put the, you know, who can connect the dots the best? Who can explain it the clearest? Like who intellectually has really figured this out and can really explain it well? That person should be in charge. That's not the qualification either. The qualification isn't even, okay, who's turned, turned their life around the most since they met Jesus? Who's grown morally? Like Jesus has really transformed their lives. That's not the qualification either. The qualification is, who saw what happened? Who saw what 
happened, which means at its core, Christianity is about this movement that we call Christianity, which is really the kingdom of God going around the globe. This movement we call Christianity is about what happened. It's about whether or not God actually entered into space and time in Jesus, whether or not Jesus was crucified and rose again. That's the core question. It's not about whether or not, you know, your neighbors uh, who claim that they're Christians actually act like it or not. I mean, it'd be great if they did, and if we're followers of Jesus and living into this kingdom story, then that should change the way we live, right? That's not the core of it. Christianity doesn't exist just to make people better. It exists because something happened in history. It's also not about, you know, Christianity doesn't exist to help me make sense of the world or to feel better about myself or experience more positive emotions than negative emotions. I don't follow Jesus because he makes me happy. I follow Jesus because he's the son of God who came to earth, died, rose again, because it happened in history. That's the point. Now, I know there's all kinds of people in the room here, some who have been following Jesus their whole lives. Uh, some of you who are kind of exploring, like, what is this Jesus thing? Um, some of you are like, yeah, you know, whatever. This fine. Good for those that it's, it's good for. And the, what Luke is telling us here, by tying the witness to actual events in history is, hey, it doesn't matter if it works for you or doesn't work for you. It doesn't matter if it makes you a better person or doesn't make you a better person. It doesn't matter if it helps you make sense of the world or not make sense of the world. What matters is, did this happen or not? And to get this movement going, we need 12 guys who saw it happen. That's huge point number two. Huge point number two is that this is about something God did in time. That's why we call it the gospel Gospel means good news, not good idea or good teaching or good philosophy. Good news about an event, a thing that happened that God did in space and time. That's the message, the gospel of the kingdom. Now, third big point, and I'll be done with this. Uh, third big point or minor point or 2B or however you, write it, you wrote it down. That word apostle means to be sent. To be an apostle is to be sent. And the fact that the apostles never show up again, other than Peter here and there and the 12 or the apostles, uh, they never show up again and they're totally gone by chapter 15, uh, shows us that to be an apostle is not just to be sent, but it's also to send others. Because that's what happens throughout the rest of the story. I'm kind of reading ahead, so spoiler alert. What we keep seeing these guys doing is sending letters, sending people, sending funds. They're sending Philip here. They're sending Barnabas here. To be an apostle is to be sent to send others with the message to represent Jesus and the kingdom of God. Most of the 12 stick it out in Jerusalem. That's who they're called to. They're calling Jewish people back to Jesus, but they send others out, and they send us. Faith Church, 21st century, right now, we are part of the apostolic stream of being sent. Because to hear the news, to believe the news, is to be sent to tell others the news. So you might have heard the scripture reading and wondered, what does the story of the gruesome death of Judas and the appointment of a forgotten apostle have to do with us today? And the answer 
is pretty much everything. Because this is the whole story that we're part of. The, the whole big story of how God is recreating the world through his actual actions in history, in Jesus. And now that we've heard the good news, we proclaim the good news. And while we wait, we gather together to remind ourselves again of the news of what God has done in history for us. Our faith is never about me and Jesus just doing our best day by day. It's always about gathering together with others who have heard the news to figure out new ways to share the news. And this whole big thing all goes back to 12 guys in a room called by God to call people back to God and sending us to do the same. So let's pray. Father, just like these 12, we need your, uh, we need your power. We need your, um, your inspiration. Literally, we need your spirit to fill us and empower us with the message of the kingdom. Transform us first that we may live lives of transformed community and that your kingdom may be evident in us as we wait for you to come at the end of the ages. And Father, may we be ambassadors of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, until he returns. In his name we pray, amen.